Good evening, listener, and welcome to Mr. Spike's Bedtime Stories. I do hope you are sitting comfortably. You are? Very good. Then I shall begin tonight's tale. The Open Window by Saki My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Nuttall, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttall endeavoured to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment, without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. "'I know how it will be,' his sister had said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. "'You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul.' and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Mrs. Sappleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. "'Do you know many of the people round here?' asked the niece, when she judged that they had had sufficient silent communion. "'Hardly a soul,' said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller. He was wondering whether Mrs. Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. "'Her great tragedy happened just three years ago,' said the child. "'That would be since your sister's time.' "'Her tragedy?' asked Frampton. "'Somehow in this restful country spot tragedies seemed out of place.' "'You may wonder why we keep that window wide open on an October afternoon,' said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened onto a lawn. "'It is quite warm for the time of the year,' said Frampton. "'But has that window got anything to do with the tragedy?' "'Out through that window, three years ago to a day, "'her husband and her two brothers went off for their day's shooting. "'They never came back. "'In crossing the moor to their favourite snipe shooting-ground, "'they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog. "'It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, "'and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning.' Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day, they and that little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out— her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing Bertie, Why Do You Bound, as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know, sometimes, on still quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk in through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. 
It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late in making her appearance. "'I hope Vera has been amusing you,' she said. "'She has been very interesting,' said Frampton. "'I hope you don't mind the open window,' said Mrs. Suppleton briskly. "'My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they make a fine mess over my poor carpets. So like you menfolk, isn't it?' She rattled on cheerfully about the shooting and the scarcity of birds and the prospects for duck in the winter. To Frampton it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate, but only partially successful, effort to turn the talk on to a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window at the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence— that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. "'The doctors agreed in ordering me complete rest, an absence of mental excitement and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise,' announced Frampton, who laboured under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailments and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Mrs. Sappleton, in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she said, just in time for tea. Don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned towards the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window, with dazed horror in her eyes. In a chill shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulders. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dark, "'I say, Bertie, why do you bound?' Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat, the hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid an imminent collision. "'Here we are, my dear,' said the bearer of the white Mackintosh, coming in through the window. "'Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up?' "'A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nuttall,' said Mrs. Suppleton could only talk about his illnesses, and dashed off without a word of good-bye or apology when you arrived. One would think he had seen a ghost. "'I expect it was the Spaniel,' said the niece calmly. "'He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs, and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave, with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him.' enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance at short notice was her speciality. The Music on the Hill by Saki
Sylvia Saltoon ate her breakfast in the morning room at Yesney with a pleasant sense of ultimate victory, such as a fervent Ironside might have permitted himself on the morrow of Worcester fight. She was scarcely pugnacious by temperament, but belonged to that more successful class of fighters who are pugnacious by circumstance. Fate had willed that her life should be occupied with a series of small struggles, usually with the odds slightly against her, and usually she had just managed to come through winning. And now she felt that she had brought her hardest and certainly her most important struggle to a successful issue. To have married Mortimer Seltoon, dead Mortimer, as his more intimate enemies called him, in the teeth of the cold hostility of his family, and in spite of his unaffected indifference to women, was indeed an achievement that had needed some determination and adroitness to carry through. Yesterday she had brought her victory to its concluding stage, by wrenching her husband away from town and its group of satellite watering-places, and settling him down in the vocabulary of her kind, in this remote, wood-girt manor-farm which was his country house. "'You'll never get Mortimer to go,' his mother had said carpingly. "'But if he once goes, you'll stay. Yesney throws almost as much a spell over him as town does. One can understand what holds him to town, but Yesney—' <laughs> and the dowager had shrugged her shoulders. There was a sombre, almost savage wildness about Yesney that was certainly not likely to appeal to town-bred tastes, and Sylvia, notwithstanding her name, was accustomed to nothing much more sylvan than leafy Kensington. She looked on to the country as something excellent and wholesome in its way, which was apt to become troublesome if you encouraged it overmuch. The distrust of town life had been a new thing with her, born of her marriage with Mortimer, and she had watched with satisfaction the gradual fading of what she called the German Street look in his eyes, as the woods and heather of Yesney had closed in on them yesternight. Her willpower and strategy had prevailed. Mortimer would stay. Outside the morning-room windows was a triangular slope of turf, which the indulgent might call a lawn and beyond its low hedge of neglected fuchsia-bushes a steeper slope of heather and bracken dropped down into cavernous combes overgrown with oak and yew. In its wild open savagery there seemed a stealthy linking of the joy of life with the terror of unseen things. Sylvia smiled complacently as she gazed with a school-of-art appreciation at the landscape, and then of a sudden she almost shuddered. "'It is very wild!' she said to Mortimer, who had joined her. One could almost think that, in such a place, the worship of Pan had never quite died out. The worship of Pan has never died out, said Mortimer. Other newer gods have drawn aside his votaries from time to time, but he is the nature-god to whom all must come back at last. He has been called the father of all the gods, but most of his children have been stillborn. Sylvia was religious in an honest, vaguely devotional kind of way, and did not like to hear her beliefs spoken of as mere aftergrowths. But it was at least something new and hopeful to hear dead Mortimer speak with such energy and conviction on any subject. "'You don't really believe in Pan?' she asked incredulously. "'I've been a fool in most things,' said Mortimer quietly. "'but I'm not such a fool as not to believe in Pan when I'm down here. 
and if you're wise, you won't disbelieve in him too boastfully while you're in his country. It was not till a week later, when Sylvia had exhausted the attractions of the woodland walks round Yesney, that she ventured on a tour of inspection of the farm buildings. A farmyard suggested in her mind a scene of cheerful bustle, with churns and flails and smiling dairymaids, and teams of horses drinking knee-deep in duck-crowded ponds. As she wandered among the gaunt grey buildings of Yesney Manor Farm, her first impression was one of crushing stillness and desolation, as though she had happened on some lone deserted homestead long given over to owls and cobwebs. Then came a sense of furtive, watchful hostility, the same shadow of unseen things that seemed to lurk in the wooded combes and coppices. From beyond heavy doors and shuttered windows came the restless stamp of hoof or rasp of chain-halter, and at times a muffled bellow from some stalled beast. From a distant corner a shaggy dog watched her with intent, unfriendly eyes. As she drew near, it slipped quietly into its kennel, and slipped out again as noiselessly when she had passed by. A few hens, questing for food under a rick, stole away under a gate at her approach. Sylvia felt that if she had come across any human beings in this wilderness of barn and byre, they would have fled wraith-like from her gaze. At last, turning a corner quickly, she came upon a living thing that did not fly from her. A stretch in a pool of mud was an enormous sow, gigantic beyond the town-woman's wildest computation of swine-flesh, and speedily alert to resent and, if necessary, repel the unwonted intrusion. It was Sylvia's turn to make an unobtrusive retreat. As she threaded her way past rickyards and cowsheds and long blank walls, she started suddenly at a strange sound, the echo of a boy's laughter, golden and equivocal. Jan, the only boy employed on the farm, a tow-headed, wizen-faced yokel, was visibly at work on a potato-clearing halfway up the nearest hillside, and Mortimer, when questioned, knew of no other probable or possible begetter of the hidden mockery that had ambushed Sylvia's retreat. The memory of that untraceable echo was added to her other impressions of a furtive, sinister something that hung around Yesney. Of Mortimer she saw very little. Farm and woods and trout streams seemed to swallow him up from dawn till dusk. Once, following the direction she had seen him take in the morning, she came to an open space in a nut-copse, further shut in by huge yew-trees, in the centre of which stood a stone pedestal surmounted by a small bronze figure of a youthful pan. It was a beautiful piece of workmanship, but her attention was chiefly held by the fact that a newly cut bunch of grapes had been placed as an offering at its feet. Grapes were none too plentiful at the manor-house, and Sylvia snatched the bunch angrily from the pedestal. Contemptuous annoyance dominated her thoughts as she strolled slowly homeward, and then gave way to a sharp feeling of something that was very near fright. Across a thick tangle of undergrowth a boy's face was scowling at her, brown and beautiful with unutterably evil eyes. It was a lonely pathway, all pathways round Yesney were lonely for the matter of that, and she sped forward without waiting to give a closer scrutiny to this sudden apparition. It was not till she had reached the house that she discovered that she had dropped the bunch of grapes in her flight. "'I saw a youth in the wood today,' 
she told Mortimer that evening. "'Brown-faced and rather handsome, but a scoundrel to look at. A traveller lad, I suppose.' "'A reasonable theory,' said Mortimer. "'Only there aren't any travellers in these parts at present.' "'Then who was he?' asked Sylvia. And as Mortimer appeared to have no theory of his own, she passed on to recount her findings of the votive offering. "'I suppose it was your doing,' she observed. "'It's a harmless piece of lunacy, but people would think you dreadfully silly if they knew of it.' "'Did you meddle with it in any way?' asked Mortimer. "'I, I threw the grapes away. It seems so silly,' said Sylvia, watching Mortimer's impassive face for a sign of annoyance. "'I don't think you were wise to do that.' he said reflectively. I've heard it said that the wood gods are rather horrible to those who molest them. Horrible, perhaps, to those that believe in them, but you see I don't, retorted Sylvia. All the same, said Mortimer in his even, dispassionate tone, I should avoid the woods and orchards if I were you, and give a wide berth to the horned beasts on the farm. It was all nonsense, of course, but in that lonely, wood-girt spot, nonsense seemed able to rear a bastard brood of uneasiness. "'Mortimer,' said Sylvia suddenly, "'I think we will go back to town sometime soon.' Her victory had not been so complete as she had supposed. It had carried her on to ground that she was already anxious to quit. "'I don't think you will ever go back to town,' said Mortimer. He seemed to be paraphrasing his mother's prediction as to himself. Sylvia noticed with dissatisfaction and some self-contempt that the course of her next afternoon's ramble took her indistinctively clear of the network of woods. As to the horned cattle, Mortimer's warning was scarcely needed, for she had always regarded them of doubtful neutrality at the best. Her imagination unsexed the most matronly dairy cows and turned them into bulls liable to see red at any moment. The ram, who fed in the narrow paddock below the orchards, she had adjudged after ample and cautious probation to be of docile temper. Today, however, she decided to leave his docility untested, for the usually tranquil beast was roaming with every sign of restlessness from corner to corner of his meadow. A low, fitful piping, as of some reedy flute, was coming from the depth of a neighbouring copse, and there seemed to be some subtle connection between the animal's restless pacing and the wild music from the wood. Sylvia turned her steps in an upward direction, and climbed the heather-clad slopes that stretched in rolling shoulders high above Yesney. She had left the piping notes behind her, but across the wooded combs at her feet the wind brought her another kind of music— the straining bay of hounds in full chase. Yesney was just on the outskirts of the Devon and Somerset country, and the hunted deer sometimes came that way. Sylvia could presently see a dark body breasting hill after hill, and sinking again and again out of sight as he crossed the combes, while behind him steadily swelled that relentless chorus, and she grew tense with the excited sympathy that one feels for any hunted thing in whose capture one is not directly interested and at last he broke through the outermost line of oak scrub and fern, and stood panting in the open, a fat September stag carrying a well-furnished head. His obvious course was to drop down to the brown pools of Undercombe, and thence make his way towards the red deer's favoured sanctuary, the sea. To Sylvia's surprise, however, 
he turned his head to the upland slope and came lumbering resolutely onward over the heather. It will be dreadful, she thought. The hounds will pull him down under my very eyes. But the music of the pack seemed to have died away for a moment, and in its place she heard again that wild piping, which rose now on this side, now on that, as though urging the failing stag to a final effort. Sylvia stood well aside from his path, half-hidden in a thick growth of wattle-bushes, and watched him swing stiffly upward, his flanks dark with sweat, the coarse hair on his neck showing light by contrast. The pipe music shrilled suddenly around her, seeming to come from the bushes at her very feet, and at the same moment the great beast slewed round and bore directly down upon her. In an instant her pity for the hunted animal was changed to wild terror at her own danger. The thick heather roots mocked her scrambling efforts at flight, and she looked frantically downward for a glimpse of oncoming hounds. The huge antler spikes were within a few yards of her, and in a flash of numbing fear she remembered Mortimer's warning to beware of horned beasts on the farm. And then, with a quick throb of joy, she saw that she was not alone. A human figure stood a few paces aside, knee-deep in the wattle bushes. "'Drive it off!' she shrieked. But the figure made no answering movement. The antlers drove straight at her breast. The acrid smell of the hunted animal was in her nostrils. But her eyes were filled with the horror of something she saw other than her oncoming death. And in her ears rang the echo of a boy's laughter, golden and equivocal.